Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. You know, some days stand out, they stand out more than other days. I'm, I'm sure there's some sort of psychological or physiological reason for that. For, for example, I vividly remember my wedding day, but I don't expect any of you guys to remember my wedding day. You weren't there, and I don't know what you were doing that day either, so I, I really can't even help you there. Some of you weren't born yet. Um, I remember uh, the birth of my sons, both of them I remember vividly, um, but I bet the physician who oversaw the delivery of my sons. I bet that physician probably has no vivid recollection of that day. It's like any other birth for the physician there. You know, for me, those were extremely significant days, life-altering events for me and and for my family, uh, uh, just tremendous events, and so they stand out for me. But of course, the significance of those days are relatively limited in scope doesn't affect a, a, a great deal of people. It very, has very limited impact beyond my family. But we think about as a civilization, there are days that carry significance for us as a, as a people. Um, for my generation, the day that stands out more than others is what? September 11th. Isn't it interesting? We don't have to say what happened that day. Uh, September 11th, 2001. You don't have to add the year. September 11th is such a, such a, a stark day in our history that, that um, I remember vividly what I was doing, and I suspect most of you do as well, if, if you were alive. Uh, I, I know my day was spent on the phone and around televisions. It's one of those days where, where people just gathered up, circled around whatever television screen they could find to, to understand what was happening. And, and that was for everybody. For many people, that day involved the memory of trying to make phone calls to check on loved ones who worked in Washington or New York trying to track down their loved ones or who may have been traveling that day or whose plane may have been grounded that day. And maybe you have recollections of having to try to make phone calls with very congested lines. For thousands of people, their memories of that day simply pertain to survival, trying to get out of the way or for many run towards the danger and survive in doing so. Uh, again, that day is such a stark day, and the events thereafter, I, I remember Congress gathering on the, the steps of the Capitol singing uh, God Bless America that evening, and, and what just a, what a stark image that was. Previous generations may list things like the moon landing or the Kennedy assassination. Those who are uh, of the greatest generation, you might think of things like the bombing of Pearl Harbor or D, the D-Day invasion, those days that stand out far different than, than other days. Again, what is it that makes us remember those things? Maybe it's the significance of the event, the significance of the day that makes memorability greater. In our faith journey, we should have those days as well. I, I can't necessarily tell you what passage of Scripture I read in my daily Bible study three weeks ago. I don't have a, a remembrance of exactly what chapter and verse I was reading on that day. But I can tell you about the day that I was saved. Or I can tell you about the events that led up to me surrendering into ministry. I can tell you about those days. Those days stand out beyond other days. I, I can tell you about the time in Mexico when I shared the gospel in the city square of a little town called Tehuapango where dozens of people responded to the gospel after I preached the sermon that day. I, I can tell you vividly that day. It stands out more than others. It's not every day that we preach in a city square and we see dozens of people respond to the gospel 
I hope that you have a long list of memories in your faith journey that of days that stand out more than other days, of moments in your life and your walk with Christ that are crystallized by their prominence. I hope you have those days, those stories that stand out. Today we find ourselves facing a day unlike any other day as it's described in the book of Joshua. It's another battle, much like other battles. So far, we've only had two major conflicts that stand out in the Jericho campaign. We know the story of God's miraculous destruction of those massive walls. The AI campaign was marked first by defeat until the nation had the opportunity to deal with the sin that had crept into the camp. And after they deal with that, you have the stunning military maneuver and the conquest of AI. And I'm sure that those stories were, were memorable for those men who fought in those battles. Just as many of you that have seen combat, you have vivid memories of what those events were like. And I'm sure that there were stories of those days that those soldiers shared with their children and grandchildren. But when we get to Joshua chapter 10, there is, a, there is a battle that stands out on its own in a very incredible way. The day the sun stood still would become yet another reminder of God's commitment to his plan and to his people. So this morning, I'd invite you to join with the Israelites in Joshua chapter 10 as we consider this remarkably significant day to think about how God's miraculous intervention that day continues to inform us this day. If you've got your Bibles open to Joshua chapter 10, we'll be reading a, 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 a lengthy section of Scripture today. Joshua chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. If you've got your Bibles open, please read along. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen behind me. Joshua chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. As soon as Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israelites and were among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were warriors." So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hohem, the king of Hebron, and Piram, the king of Jarmuth, and Japhia, the king of Lachish, and to Dabir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of, Jar and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon. And made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal, and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Ezekiah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel while they were going down the descent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large hailstones from heaven as far as Ezekiah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones. Then the sons of Israel killed with the sword. 
At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on its enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of the heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Father, I thank you for this stunning picture. It's almost unbelievable, God, as we read what happened that day in that tremendous battle in a day that there's been nothing like it since or ever before. Father, I pray that as we consider the miraculous today, that you will help us to be men and women of faith who believe and trust in you completely. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You could be seated. You know, last week we talked about the fact this little city-state of Gibeon had made a treaty with Israel by duping them. They pulled a, a master deception. If you weren't here, go back and read chapter 9, look up the YouTube video, listen to the podcast. They developed this elaborate ruse, and by doing so, they had convinced Israel to enter into a treaty with them. Israel, by doing so, had to defy what God had asked them to do, but Israel honored their treaty. And instead of facing judgments like the other cities, the other nations in Canaan, that meant the Gibeonites were now under the protection of Israel. So this powerful city-state feared for its life, entered into a treaty with Israel, and now they were partners, so to speak. We get no further than the next chapter that some of those other city-states in Canaan decide that it's time to put that treaty to the test. Much like we would experience today in in a NATO situation, if a NATO country were bombed by an enemy, that would put that treaty to the test. Would other NATO nations come to the rescue of that country that had been attacked a couple of weeks ago when that rocket hit Poland? There was a real question. Were other NATO countries going to come to Poland's defense? And they determined that it wasn't a Russian rocket that landed in Poland. But nonetheless, this is what's happening here. There is a test of this treaty. We're told that Gibeon was a major city, a a major player in the region. And if they were united with Israel, then that would make Israel all the more powerful. And of course, these kings... They're thinking from a military, a political strategy. They recognize that Israel didn't need military allies, but nonetheless, having Gibeon in their back pocket meant that they were a much more formidable foe, not to mention the fact that God was fighting on their behalf and didn't even need any allies. So you have this coalition of kings. They decide to join forces to get rid of Gibeon and hopefully get rid of Israel in the process. As you can imagine... Gibeon cashes that check. They call out for reinforcements. Joshua, we need help. We need your help to overcome this enemy that is at our gate. And so Israel honors its treaty. Joshua honors his commitment. He marches overnight to rescue Gibeon, a distance of something about 20 miles. He marches his troops. They show up the next day for this incredible battle that will unfold over the coming hours. But verse 8 is important. Because verse 8 reminds us that this is a sanctioned battle. This isn't Israel fighting without the Lord's instruction. God sanctions this battle. Israel had taken actions without consulting the Lord. That first battle of Ai, they took without consulting the Lord. The treaty that they made with Gibeon, they did that without consulting the Lord. But this time, God gave them the go-ahead. 
And God not only gave them his word, you do this, he also shows them in miraculous form that he is sanctioning this battle. For example, he confuses the enemy troops. Verse 10 says that the Lord threw them into a panic. I imagine that a, uh, a panicking ancient army was a sight to behold. Uh, again, you see that outcome in a few places of the Old Testament, this, this army thrown into panic. And again, you've got to think about the, the way the battle is fought. It's a bloody face-off. It's not like they're sitting, you know, two miles away from each other launching artillery at one another. This, this battle is literally hand-to-hand combat, sword-to-sword combat, spear-to-spear combat. And in that situation, being able to hold the line and, and have communication was essential. Put yourself in the shoes of these infantrymen standing on the front line, knowing that you're about to go toe-to-toe with other human beings and that the outcome of this battle likely involves you being killed or maimed. And that's the reality. You're, you're getting ready for battle. It's, it's not like today where, where you know, somebody flying a remote-controlled drone is bombing somebody that they can't even see. These guys are marching across a battlefield. They're standing face-to-face one another. They're not shooting at an unnamed and unfaced person from a distance. They're facing off, looking at each other in the eye with swords drawn, knowing that they're about to go into battle and be killed or kill or be maimed or maim. That's all, the amount of stress. I mean, again, I just try to imagine the level of stress that this would be. This, it pushes the human being to the, to the extent of the stress they can manage. I mean, I, I couldn't fathom the idea. I mean, sitting in heavy traffic causes me stress. I'm ready to, ready to, to you know, work on my sanctification more. I couldn't imagine this. But this is what they're, this is what they're facing. And you throw in a little bit of God-inspired panic, the lines will never hold, and the battle is no longer a battle. It becomes what's known in the Bible as a theological term known as a chase, meaning they're running, we're going after them. But then God does something else. He not only confuses the enemy, God adds in a hailstorm, but not just any hailstorms. One of these hailstorms where getting hit doesn't mean a new roof, getting hit means you're dead. Again, I, imagine icy bowling balls falling from the heavens. I mean, that's what this is. The text says that more enemies died from the hailstones than were killed by the Israelites' swords. But then God had one more intervention ready for this day. You ever feel like there just aren't enough hours in the day? Maybe you felt that way on Friday. I saw some of y'all out shopping on Friday, and you've been at it since early in the morning. And you got to the, you know, by the lunchtime, it's like, man, I just I hadn't got to all the places I need to go. If I could just stretch this day out a little bit more, just a few more hours in the day. If you've ever felt that way, you're in good company in Joshua chapter 10. Because Joshua prays a bold prayer, but it was a prayer that God was pleased to answer. We are told in Joshua chapter 10 that the celestial movement paused for a day so that the nation had enough daylight to do what needed to be done. That's incredible. Again, we don't need to gloss over this because this last act of divine intervention is one where skeptics lose their ever-loving mind. This is where people say, there's no way. There's no way. Again, let's think about this. Let's, Let's think about what we're up against here. It isn't hard to imagine panic and fear taking over an taking over an army. 
Like, I mean, I look at that and say, I, God didn't have to break a sweat, figuratively speaking, to cause that miracle. I mean, they're already up against an army that had a really big reputation. It probably wasn't hard to get those guys to, to start panicking each other. And it's not even hard to imagine a thunderstorm dropping hailstones. I mean, we've seen thunderstorms where hail falls. The, the largest hailstone that we have on record was somewhere in Argentina, and it's about 10 inches across. These hailstones like this are known to be able to fall onto a house, go through the roof and, the, and, and multiple floors of the house because terminal velocity of a hailstone that big, that'll do some damage. So, so again, I've never seen that before. I've never been in an environment where I've seen like softball-sized hail or, or, or you know, we, we name it by fruits, like, you know, dime-sized or, or, or change, dime-sized hail. I mean, I, I've seen pea-sized hail. I can't imagine running and suddenly the heavens open and these, these icy bowling balls falling from the sky. I wouldn't want to encounter that storm. But that last miracle, the sun standing still, the moon standing still? Now, us enlightened scientific folks, we understand that they weren't moving to begin with, that we're the ones moving. And so what had to happen, because we understand how the cosmos works, is that the earth spinning on its axis stopped. And we had, that's what happened. That's what had to happen. And we look at that today and a skeptic say, yeah, you know, if that happened, there'd be some serious consequences to such a thing. An article in Astronomy Magazine said, actually, said what would happen. Astronomers say if Earth stopped spinning all at once, like the brakes got slammed on, that it would be enormously catastrophic for the planet's surface. Because though we don't feel it, we're moving along with the planet as it rotates. And if you're at the equator, that's about a thousand miles per hour that you're moving. And so if the planet stopped suddenly, everything sitting on top of it would go flying eastwardly at roughly 1,000 miles an hour. Imagine all the people, all the houses, all the trees, all the boulders, everything being launched sideways at 100 miles an hour. In the aftermath, because the atmosphere would still be spinning, the, the wind would continue to move because the atmosphere would continue to spin. So winds would literally strip the surface of the earth of everything that wasn't literally nailed down. Such an act of the earth stopping suddenly would eliminate all complex life forms as we know it. That's what would happen if the earth stopped spinning on its axis. So everybody say, thank God for gravity, right? Because that allows us to move comfortably at 1,000 miles an hour. So I will say that's a little alarming to think about. If there was a gradual slowdown, it would be less dramatic but the consequences would still be profound as one side of the earth baked and the other side froze. But this raises a very important question. Is this one too far-fetched to believe? Is this miracle just a little far out there for us to deal with? Couldn't we just toss this story into the, the genre of epic lore move on with the story of Joshua. Just, just, just put a pause on this one and move on to the next chapter. Because by affirming this miracle, aren't we, aren't we just completely ruining our witness with the scientific and intellectual community? Because they're all looking at us saying, you goofy Christians. If that actually happened, nothing would be, it'd be destroyed. It'd be devastated. There wouldn't be any armies left standing. I mean, after all, we're already on thin ice with the book of Joshua. With the brutality of the military, that, that 
thing about genocide that, that some people read into this. Shouldn't we just read through this part really quickly and move on to the rest of the story? Well, I, I think it's interesting. The first objection, I believe the answer is really quite simple. If God had the power to hit pause on the celestial events, I imagine that God also had the power to hit pause on the physical consequences of pausing those events. I mean, let's just say that if God has the power to stop the earth from spinning, he's got the power to keep the consequences from unfolding too. So we have no problem there. If we think God can do it, then God can also spare us the the devastation that would unfold as a result. If a natural, if, if a natural phenomenon took place that suddenly stopped the rotation of the earth, then yes, we can acknowledge that the consequences would be profound, and it would mean likely the extinction of all complex life on the planet. That's why NASA sent a refrigerator to an asteroid a few months ago to hit that thing to see if we can knock it off course. And we can, and so that's why they did that. So maybe we can avoid this. But understand this, in Joshua 10, we're not dealing with a natural phenomenon. This is not an asteroid's gravitational pull stopping the rotation of the earth. We are dealing with a supernatural intervention. And if God has shown us anything in history, particularly as he reveals himself in his word, he isn't watching history unfold from a distance. He is constantly intervening in the lives of his people and in the planet that he has created. The history of humanity is a history that is filled with God's intervention. There's a lot of people who try to, who try to remove God's hand from things, that God has set everything into motion, put all the pieces together so that everything can continue, and that God is just sitting back watching it all unfold. But that's not the picture of the God we see in the Bible. The history of humanity is, that God, that is filled with God's intervention. You start in the garden. What did God do? He walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. He interacted with Adam and Eve in the garden. By implication, he carried on communication, conversation. I believe God taught them in the garden. There were things that he was teaching them during that time before the fall. After the fall, God intervenes in the first animal sacrifice to cover the shame of the people. The best they could do was come up with fig leaves. And God said, there's something better. He allowed that first sacrifice to cover their shame. You get to the flood. God intervenes in the flood. People say God punished iniquity, but God also preserved a remnant. People get hung up on what God destroyed, but I like to think about what God saved. God saved a family. God saved life so that it could continue. You get to the Tower of Babel. God intervenes in the pride of humanity by confusing languages, beginning the great distribution of nation, tribe, and tongue. That's not human evolution. It's divine intervention. God caused that. God created that. You get into Genesis chapter 11 and 12. You meet Abraham. God enters into a legal agreement with this one man, Abraham, and his family to begin a millennia-long process of redemption through a nation and eventually through a Savior. It is God intervening. We see God intervening with Abraham's descendants in stunning stories like we see in the Exodus and even here in the book of Joshua. We encounter these divine interventions in the book of Joshua as God begins to satisfy his covenant promises to Abraham. There is nothing about God's revelation of himself in Scripture that suggests that he is far off or distant. There's nothing that would point to that conclusion. We understand from God's presence in Scripture that he is present, he is active, he is concerned, and he is ever, ever faithful. That's the reality of who God is, and if anything, Joshua chapter 10 continues to confirm that. You may be somebody 
who reads these incredible accounts of God's power on display. Things like floods and parting of seas and rivers and literally the rotation of the earth pausing. And you may come to the conclusion, just give me Jesus and his teaching and leave all that other stuff behind. I hate to tell you this. Jesus believed this. Jesus believed these stories. Jesus believed the Old Testament. Jesus believed the accounts that are contained in the Old Testament. Jesus referenced things like creation and flood. Jesus spoke about the reality of Jonah and Jonah's preaching and Jonah's time in the belly of the fish. Jesus talked about that. Again, you could get to the Old Testament, throw the book of Jonah out, and if you didn't know it was there, you aren't missing it except you get to the New Testament and Jesus quotes it and talks about it and speaks of it, which means that Jesus believed there was a literal prophet named Jonah who spent time in the literal belly of a well and got puked up on the land and sent to Nineveh to preach. Jesus believed that. Jesus affirmed these things. But let's not forget the fact that Jesus also did things that science has a hard time explaining. Imagine if we could interview Lazarus today. Lazarus, tell us a little bit about what happened. I don't have a clue. I was dead, and then I wasn't. Or Jairus' daughter, I don't know what happened. I was dead, and then I wasn't. Talk about the people whose lives were upended as Jesus took away their leprosy or stopped their hemorrhaging. I think about that woman who had bled for so many years, yet in that moment of time, she was healed and restored. She was an outcast to society, and through the power of Jesus, she was restored to a place of, 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 of acceptance in her society. Her life literally changed through the power of of Jesus. No doctor could heal her. Luke said, I don't know what to do with her. Nobody could help her. They just took her money. But Jesus changed her life. Science couldn't explain that. What about all those hungry bellies that were filled to the brim with bread and fish that had their origin in a little boy's lunchbox? Did you enjoy your lunch today? Man, I sure did. Well, where did it come from? I don't know. That kid gave his lunch to Jesus, and Jesus fed all of us. Maybe you're still somebody who just, you look at Jesus' miraculous works, maybe you come to the conclusion that they're just historical hyperbole, literary inventions to prove a point. If that's you, then I would caution you that your faith is on very, very shaky ground. Just consider what Jesus, how his story begins. The angel said to her, Mary, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. A teenager, just a young, young girl. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Nothing wrong right there, except the next verse. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Got complicated really quick, didn't it? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit 
come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. You don't get Jesus without this. You don't get the gospel without this. You don't get Jesus, the Son of God, without this. The prophet Isaiah pointed to this same reality and gave him a name, the name Emmanuel, God with us. As we approach the Christmas season, you can have all the trappings of the holiday, but if you miss the greatest intervention of God into human history, then I'm afraid you've missed Jesus. If your faith doesn't have room for a God who is able to intervene in the human story, then I would argue that your faith doesn't have room for a God who can take on flesh and take on the name God with us. The sun standing still in Joshua 10 may seem like it's too far of a reach, but I believe that the miracle that took place that day in the shadow of Gibeon, the shadow that was a day longer, mind you, than it had ever been before, I would argue that that miracle pales in comparison to the miracle that unfolded in the virgin's womb and that Bethlehem manger. God intervened in the plains of Gibeon. God intervened in our salvation as well. God taking on flesh and dwelling among us. But if your Jesus is only a good teacher, if he's only a profound philosopher, if he's only a moral guru, then your Jesus isn't God and your Jesus isn't able to save. But the God who can create planets with the word of his mouth, the God who can pause their orbit without breaking a sweat, the God who can judge evil with a whisper is the same God that conquers sin with his blood and defeats death with his power. The Christian faith is not about having answers and explanations for everything. I can't pretend to tell you how that fateful day in Joshua chapter 10 unfolded. I don't know if it was a slow break or if it was a sudden break. I don't know if everybody kind of shifted a little bit like when somebody hits the brakes in the car. I don't know. I can't tell you. It doesn't give us that information. But I don't have to have those answers because the Christian faith is not about having those answers. It's about trusting a God who is able to save. And as we put our trust in Jesus, something begins to happen. The more I trust in Jesus, the less I struggle with those hard parts of the Bible. The more I trust Christ, the less I struggle with trying to get, get a good explanation of Joshua chapter 10. As I trust Jesus, I want to bring my life and my thoughts into alignment with his thoughts. If Jesus is Lord, then I have to surrender completely to him. I cannot call him Lord and doubt the things that he very much believes in. Listen, believing the events of Joshua chapter 10 are not required for salvation. If one of these little children came up to us and said, Pastor, I'd like to understand what it means to follow Christ, we're not gonna sit down and say, all right, little, little Johnny, 
you have to believe Joshua chapter 10 that God made the planet stand still while he allowed a battle to unfold. And if you believe that and trust in Jesus, then you get to go to heaven when you die. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus, the Son of God, the perfect Son of God, died on the cross for our sins in our place. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. He rose again, conquering death, and he's coming again one day. That's the gospel. But as we believe the gospel and trust the gospel, we find our mind and our heart coming far more into alignment with the things of God. You don't have to believe in Joshua chapter 10 to be saved. But as your mind is renewed, is transformed, as the word of God becomes more important in your life, it becomes more than just a history book. It becomes a precious message from Jesus that molds our hearts and minds more and more. But we also need to understand this. We, we not only find that the, the word of God is true, worthy of our attention, we should also find our desires growing to follow Jesus in his own teachings as well. Because the other side of this is, is simple. You can believe the miracles of the sun standing still. You can believe the parting of the Red Sea, the parting of the Jordan River. You can believe those things. You can believe the, the miracles of Elijah and Elisha. And you say, man, these are true. But I can make this same point. How I love my neighbor is no less important than whether I agree with the miracles of the Old Testament or not. If I believe that the sun stood still in Joshua chapter 10, then I also must believe that my neighbor is worthy of my love and my enemy is worth praying for. I must believe that being a peacemaker is a better goal than being a troublemaker because Jesus said it was. I must believe that my gifts and talents have a role to play in the building of the body of Christ because that's as much the word of God as Joshua chapter 10 is. And so while there are many who will say, I don't have to believe the miracles, the fact is that if you believe Jesus, you can't help but start believing the miracles. But the reality is the same. You can't say, oh, I believe the miracles, but then you don't live a life that reflects what Jesus taught. As you follow Christ, your life should begin to reflect what Jesus taught. And so you can say, I believe all these things, but if you aren't living a life that reflects that belief, then what are you doing? James would call that faith without works. I have belief, but I don't have action to go along with what I believe. Both are shortcomings, and both have a place in our lives today to be overcome. So I'm grateful for God's intervention in history, for passages like Joshua chapter 10, for passages where we see God takes an active and involved role in human history. But inasmuch I'm thankful for a God who intervenes in history, I'm so thankful for God that intervened in my life. And you ought to be thankful for a God who intervened in your life as well, who saw fit to allow his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We celebrate this, this great news all month long, the incarnation of Jesus, the son of God taking on flesh, dwelling among us, showing us how we should live, and then paying the penalty for our sins. That is a holy God intervening he wants to change your life today. If you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, he wants to intervene in your life today. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I thank you for incredible stories like we see in Joshua chapter 10. Stories that remind us that it's more, it's more than just a tale. It's more than just a, 
an image to paint for our children, but it is an image of a God who takes active interest in the lives of his of, of humankind. And certainly we see and affirm miracles like this, but we also recognize that great miracle of Jesus taking on flesh. We recognize that great miracle of Jesus taking our place. And God, how can we ignore the great miracle of Jesus conquering death? That offer of the gospel, a God who paid the price for our sins, all sinners, we all fall short of the glory of God. There's none of us righteous. But there's a God who took our place in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he offers to rescue us from our sin. Thank you for being an intervening God who steps in and meets our greatest need, our need for a Savior. Lord, I would pray today that if there be any in this room today, watching from home, on the internet, wherever, who've not put their faith and trust in Jesus, maybe they've put their faith and trust in miracles or stories, but they've not put their faith and trust in Jesus, that today they would hear the gospel, they would hear about an intervening God who wants to rescue them and to give them his righteousness. That today, God, that they would have the courage to surrender completely and totally to you, to trust in Christ. Thank you for your word, and for your faithfulness to your word. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.